Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Trina Nadora, Sanji Lopez. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, we round up the winners and losers of yesterday's primary election. Centro Hispano is getting a new home and is working with the city to revitalize South Madison. And in the second half of the show, how workers' rights and abortion access intersect the conclusion of our series on the Black Studies strike in 1960s Madison, and more news about sleet than you ever wanted to hear, so stay tuned. All these and more on tonight's news, but first we go live to the BBC for some news from around the world. BBC News, I'm John Shea. The head of the United Nations has condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine as an affront to the world's conscience. Antonio Guterres was speaking at a special meeting of the UN General Assembly in New York. It's debating a motion tabled by Kiev's allies nearly a year after the invasion began, calling for Russia to pull out of Ukraine immediately and unconditionally. Mr Guterres denounced the invasion. The one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine stands as a grim milestone for the people of Ukraine and for the international community. That invasion is an affront to our collective conscience. It is a violation of the United Nations Charter and international law. The leaders of NATO countries in Eastern Europe have asked the United States to boost its security presence in response to Russia's war in Ukraine. The countries, known collectively as the Bucharest Nine, met President Biden and the NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg in Warsaw. Sarah Rainsford is there. There's a lot of discussion, as we understand it, about how exactly the US, how exactly NATO as an alliance would respond if this part of the world is dragged into conflict. Because I think, you know, there's a very different attitude uh, here towards the threat from Russia. It's something that uh, many countries in this uh, grouping, the Bucharest Nine, have been warning about for a long time. They have history with Russia. They have seen the threat of Russian aggression coming for a while, but they were dismissed previously as being too hung up on history. And of course, they feel now, unfortunately, that they've been vindicated. The Biden administration says it's extremely concerned by levels of violence in Israel and the occupied West Bank. The State Department spokesman made the remark after a raid by Israeli troops in Nablus left 11 Palestinians dead and about 100 wounded. Tom Bateman reports from Nablus. Explosions and gunfire sounded in the heart of Nablus as armoured troop carriers and soldiers with dogs raided the narrow streets of the old city. It triggered armed clashes with Palestinian gunmen before Israeli troops fired shoulder-launched missiles at a house in which three senior Palestinian militants were holed up, having said they wouldn't surrender. Israel says they were involved in the killing of a soldier last year and were planning imminent attacks. But several of those killed outside are civilians, including two elderly men, while footage shows young men apparently unarmed running away as gunshots are heard before one falls to the ground. The Israeli army said it was reviewing the video. 
Iranian state television says a militant linked to an outlawed Kurdish group has been executed. Arash Ahmadi, also known as Sarkud, was convicted in 2018 of killing a police major. He was shown on TV confessing to the murder, but rights groups say such admissions are often the result of torture. World News from the BBC. A court in California has sentenced a man convicted of killing the American hip-hop star Nipsey Hussle to a minimum of 60 years in jail. Eric Holder shot the rapper four years ago in the Los Angeles neighbourhood where both men had grown up. He was found guilty in July of first-degree murder with additional sentences for using a gun and wounding two other men. Holder was an aspiring rapper who'd failed to achieve the same success as Hussle. Media reports in the United States say the daughter and son-in-law of Donald Trump have been summoned to testify before a federal grand jury. They say Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner have been called to give evidence on the former president's role in the storming of the US Congress two years ago. Both served as White House officials in the Trump administration. The Attorney General of Ecuador says she'll ask for corruption charges to be brought against the former president, Lenin Moreno. The allegations relate to the construction of a huge hydroelectric plant. Nicholas Rocha reports. Lenin Moreno and 36 other people, including his wife and several relatives, face accusations of receiving bribes of more than $70 million during the decade-long construction of the Coca-Cola Sinclair hydroelectric dam. The Attorney General, Diana Salazar, said her office found evidence of corruption when investigating offshore firms owned by people close to Mr. Moreno. He denies the allegations. He's described them as a political distraction from the problems facing Ecuador. Severe weather warnings have been issued for parts of New Zealand's North Island, which are still recovering from a cyclone earlier this month that killed at least 11 people. Heavy rain and thunderstorms are expected in Hawke's Bay and the Coromandel Peninsula. They're among the regions hit by Cyclone Gabriel, the deadliest storm in New Zealand for decades. The country's finance minister has predicted that repairing the devastation will cost billions of dollars. BBC News. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison and from the Madison's east side. Here are the headlines for this evening. Former Governor Tony Earle suffered a stroke this week and is now home and receiving care. Earl, a Democrat, served as governor from 1983 until 1987 when he was defeated by Tommy Thompson. Before serving as governor, he was the secretary of the DNR and a member of the state assembly. The former governor is 86 years old. Earl is remembered for his early advocacy for gay rights and equality for women in the workplace. He was also a strong environmental advocate both during and after his term in office. An avid angler, he put into place strong protections for the state's lakes and streams. Although the primary election just took place yesterday, outside spending in the race for the state Supreme Court is already smashing records. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. With almost $6 million spent in the primary, total spending is likely to reach $20 million or more. Indeed, this is expected to be the most expensive judicial race in U.S. history. 
The previous record for Wisconsin Supreme Court race spend, uh, spending was $5 million in the year 2020. Most of the $6 million spent so far was spent either attacking with Waukesha Judge Jennifer Doro or supporting her opponent, Dan Kelly. Liberal groups spent $2.2 million in attack ads to assure that Kelly would win. At the same time, Illinois businessman Richard Uline spent $2.6 million backing Kelly through his political action committee, Fair Courts America. We'll have more on who won and who lost in yesterday's primary later in the show. In yet another indication of the pervasiveness of PFAS, a study by the Environmental Working Group found the chemical in tree swallows in Eagle River and bald eagles near Bayfield. The Journal Sentinel notes that the chemical had previously been reported in large and small mammals, including polar bears, monkeys, and tigers. In our region, high concentrations of the chemicals have been found in fish. The DNR has issued advisories warning anglers to reduce the amounts of certain fish harvested from certain bodies of water over the last few years, including fish caught in many of the lakes in Madison. As the chemical is still relatively new, not much is known about how PFAS will impact bird and fish populations. Former Democratic State Senator Kevin Shabilsky was sentenced to 33 months in federal prison for tax evasion. Shabilsky pled guilty to not paying almost $200,000 in taxes. In exchange for his guilty plea, federal prosecutors agreed to drop charges for improper storage and disposal of hazardous waste from his electronic recycling company. In addition to back taxes, he will also pay $200,000 for cleanup of chemicals and crushed glass. The sentencing judge said that Chabilsky was guilty of, quote, blatant theft and that he, quote, blamed everyone but himself. Chabilsky served as a state senator from Stevens Point from 1995 to 2002 and was appointed tourism secretary by Governor Jim Doyle. And more details have emerged over why a Dane County polling place south of Madison was shut down and moved in the early hours of the morning yesterday. An incident near a village of Brooklyn polling place appears to have had an unlikely cause, a dispute over a tree. According to NBC 15 News, the disturbance was between two business owners in downtown Brooklyn. A large tree had been growing on the property of a sewing business and was beginning to grow into both the proprietor's and the neighboring bar's basements. The bar owner wanted to see the tree cut down, but the sewing shop owner, whose property contained the tree, did not. When the sewing shop's owner saw a tree removal truck parked on their street, he then went outside and fired his gun. The man was arrested just a few hours later in the town of Oregon, and the Brooklyn polling location was allowed to stay open an extra 90 minutes to make up the time it took to move. And, and now, on to today's top headlines. stories. <laughs> <laughs> yes, on to the day's top stories. Tree disputes or not, Dane County voters hit the polls in droves yesterday for the spring primary election, deciding which candidates would make their way onto the April ballot for state Supreme Court, Madison mayor, and a bevy of city alder seats. Our producer, Nate Weggehaup, breaks it all down. 36% of registered Dane County voters cast a ballot in yesterday's primary election. That's higher than is typical in a spring primary. Here's Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald. I mean, traditionally, turnout is in the low 20s for an election like this. To, to have it even at mid-30s is, I mean, unprecedented. 
Dane County voters also turned out more when compared to the rest of the state. According to the Associated Press, 27% of registered voters in Wisconsin cast their ballot in the hotly contested state Supreme Court race. Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasiewicz will move on to the spring election in April after winning about 46% of the vote statewide. Former Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly will also move on, coming in second with about 24% of the vote. In Dane County alone, Protasiewicz won more than double the votes of the other three candidates combined. Dane County Circuit Court Judge Everett Mitchell came in a distant fourth at just 7.5% of the vote across the state. In a social media post today, Mitchell thanked supporters in a letter of gratitude and quoted civil rights leader John Lewis. Mitchell would have been the first black justice elected to the court. Meanwhile, local races were on the ballot. Incumbent Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway glided through the night with almost 60% of the vote. As polls closed and results rolled in, Rhodes-Conway celebrated at a watch party at the Argus, a Capitol Square bar, with supporters and a handful of current alders. Rhodes Conway tells WORT that she isn't slowing down heading into April. Well, we're not going to take anything for granted. We're going to keep uh, working hard to make sure that we can reach all the voters um, and share, again, the record of the last four years and the vision for the next and uh, really address the concerns that people have. I mean, I, you know, I've been very consistent in telling people what I'm going to work on uh, and then working on it. And so I think that folks know that when I say I'm going to work on something, they can trust that I will. Rhodes-Conway will face former police officer and deputy mayor Gloria Reyes, who got about 28% of the vote last night. Reyes tells WORT she's happy with the results of yesterday's election. I feel great. You know, I feel I just blessed that I passed onto the, passed the primary and onto the general election. And I'm so glad that so many Madisonians came out to vote. Going forward, Reyes says that she's digging in. It really gets informed voters about who I am and what kind of leader I will be as mayor. And I I think that uh, it's always tough when you are obviously running against an incumbent. But, you know, people are not happy in this city. And, you know, we I need to really engage our voters for the next uh, five weeks, grassroots and broaden uh, and expand our circle. Meanwhile, city traffic engineer Scott Kerr did not make the cut after throwing his hat into the ring just two months ago. He says that he's finding the positive in last night. Well, I'm disappointed that I didn't move on, but I'm also happy that I managed to run my campaign without spending money, without taking donations, and still garnered 12% of the vote. Just under 1% of Madison voters cast a write-in vote for mayor. The number of write-in votes? 608, of course. That's 11 times more write-in votes for Madison mayor than there were for Wisconsin Supreme Court in the city. That could be due in part to a fourth candidate for mayor, social worker Daniel Howell, who did not appear on the ballot yesterday after failing to file paperwork, but he had been running as a registered write-in. Meanwhile, several races for Madison Alder could be tight in April. One district on Madison's west side saw two incumbent Alders make it to the spring general, but within just five votes of each other. Incumbent Alder Matt Fair of District 20 squeaked past fellow incumbent Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney, who is running in a different district due to redistricting.
In District 14 in South Madison, Isidore Knox Jr. definitively took the top seat, but the race to decide who he will face in April was significantly closer. With just a seven-vote advantage, Noah Lieberman beat out Catherine Pedrosine to make it onto the ballot in the general election. 32 provisional ballots were issued by the city of Madison yesterday. Those provisional voters have until 4 p.m. on Friday to return to the clerk's office with the appropriate identification to have their ballots counted. Other older races were not so close last night. In District 2, sitting Alder Juliana Bennett took over 70% of the vote and will take on Colin Baruchak in April. In District 9, incumbent Alder Nikki Conklin will take on Nino Amato. And in District 10, incumbent Alder Yannette Figueroa Cole took second place, with a different sitting Alder, Sherry Carter, winning over 50% of the vote in that district. You can find the full results of all the races around Dane County yesterday on the Dane County Elections website. The 2023 Spring General Election will take place on April 4th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The time is now 6.16 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The nonprofit organization Centro Hispano has been working to support the Latinx community of Dane County since the early 1980s, with programs ranging from academic support for students to workforce and development programs. But it's time for a new home. And although their groundbreaking had to be canceled today due to weather conditions, Executive Director Karen Menendez-Collar spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt today about Centro Hispano's new home. Centro Hispano of Dane County is a South Madison-based nonprofit which has been working to serve the Latinx community in Dane County for decades. Now, with a little help from the city of Madison, Centro Hispano is getting a new home on the corner of Cypress Way and Hughes Place in South Madison. While their groundbreaking had to be canceled today due to weather, I'm joined now by Executive Director Karen Menendez-Collar to talk about the new facility. Karen, thank you so much for talking with me. Yes, thanks so much for having me. And just to start things off here, tell me a little bit about Centro Hispano. You guys have been around since the early 80s. What does your organization do? Yeah, so we've been around since 1983. It's going to be 40 years this year. And we're the largest provider of uh, support services to the Latinx community. It's the fastest growing community in the city, the county, and the state. And we believe that we need to support young people families, and communities so that everybody can thrive. And now let's talk about this new facility. How will it help uh, Centro Hispano, and what exactly is this new facility? Yeah, so right now we're located um, on Badger Road at the corner with Park Street. Our programming um, basically spans the gamut. We see young people providing leadership development, strengthening 
their social and emotional learning so that they can be strong learners in the schools and in life. We follow our young people from middle school through key transitional periods to high school, post-secondary education. And at the same time, we're following their families as well. We want to stabilize any needs that they may have when it comes to workforce, when it comes to case management. We run some of the only bilingual bicultural programming across the county. So we're really a key partner for all government entities, school districts, funded by national partners and also by statewide partners. Over the last, I would say, 10 years, we have um, tripled our staff and doubled our budget. And so now, you know, post-COVID, it's really time for us to find a space that allows us to keep growing in a sustainable way. And I think we also see this as a key transition for our community a key time and a key moment and want to make sure that post-pandemic everybody emerges stronger and that we see a future that includes our voices as well. So thanks to the city and also uh, to other incredible partners at the county, at the state and donors and, and funders, foundations, we are close to reaching our goal of 20 million. We're not there yet. Encourage everybody to join in and contribute so that we can make this dream at the corner of Cypress Way and Hughes Place a true reality that will open at the end of the year, beginning. In- and I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on something you said there, that this is this yeah. is sort of the perfect time for this new facility. What what have you seen in the last few years since since sort of the pandemic began? So when, when Centro was born, we were born out of a need to really be there to provide support to refugees coming from Cuba. Through the years, we've seen the community grow in diverse ways. We see a number of families that are from South America, a significant amount of families that are, are Mexican um, heritage. And now I think with all the changes and the global patterns that we're seeing when it comes to migration, we're actually seeing high jump in asylum scares coming to Wisconsin. And also, even individuals that are moving from other states that are coming to Wisconsin because they want to see a chance for a better life and more opportunities. I think the pandemic shifted a number of sectors when it comes to employment, and people are wanting to look at diverse ways that they can get engaged with employment, changing careers, thinking about different paths. And also um, thinking about a space that will really provide a home for them in the community, not only for themselves, but for their kids. So I think it's a a crucial time with a a state that's diversifying incredibly fast, emerging out of a crisis, and with people coming with a lot of dreams and a sense of ambition. And at Centro, that's what we are. We try to um, disrupt sectors in healthcare finance where where we see, where we need to see our faces so that we can have true wealth building. And we want to see young people that really believe that they belong in this community because they're really the future of this state. And now, as I alluded to in the introduction there, uh, this new facility is sort of happening because of a partnership with the city of Madison. Tell me about that relationship a little bit. This is part of a kind of a land swap deal, correct? Yes, yes. So it's a key uh, piece of the South Madison plan that Mayor Sati has proposed. It's the one, you know, component that I think intentionally addresses the need of the Latinx community, but also complements all the work happening in the Black Business Hub, another project that we're very excited about, the Center for Black Excellence, to really um, uplift South Madison in the way that communities of color want it to happen. And so, 
you know, the city is, is changing drastically when it comes to housing, uh, when it comes to resources that need to be um, based in communities like South Madison, child care. There's a lot of conversations around urban planning and the structure of things. And it was just the perfect time when we were looking for a new home. And in partnership with, with the mayor and, and, and her staff, we're able to find a way that this could be fulfilling for us. It places us much closer to Lincoln Elementary School in the heart of the community, and it gives more space to think creatively next to that um, South Madison transfer point that's there at the corner of Badger Road and Park Street. So I'm really, I'm really excited for what is to come. I think this is the first step in trying to move things forward and continuing to develop uh, communities that are really enriching for all of us. And now you mentioned there the South Madison plan and the Black Business Hub and organizations like that. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Now, earlier this year, the city of Madison announced a new tax incremental financing district or TIF district for South Madison. And that's to sort of help the economic growth of the area. And additionally, uh, like you mentioned, the Madison Common Council finalized their South Madison plan last year, which also looks to spur economic growth in the area. How how will Central Hispano and this new facility play into that picture, that overall picture of economic development in South Madison? I think uh, spaces that provide, how do I put this, that give you time to breathe, where you can be your full self so that then you can engage in whatever dreams and aspirations you have are key for the picture. I think one thing, one thing we fail to realize is that all communities of color, everyone is a human being. So oftentimes we track employment, we track jobs, we track all of these different things. But there are communities that are coming here that are shifting the demographic landscape um, that we may not be prepared for, that we're trying to understand, that we're trying to relate. So all those different things can happen unless there are spaces where people can feel like they belong. And I would say that in Wisconsin, we still have great strides to be made to ensure that the Latinx community feels like it belongs when it comes to policies and reducing the barriers that we face. Centro is a space where you feel like you can be your full, complete self, where you actually feel like you can ground yourself and say, I am going to take part in those opportunities across the street in the hub. I am going to explore what other opportunities might exist for me here at Centro through all of our, of our workforce, career pathways, and everything else that we have going on. Because this place has shown me that I really deserve to be here. And so it's part of the greater narrative. I think to ensure that we have thriving communities, we need to have spaces where we allow people to have the tools to thrive. It, it's an incredibly ambitious goal, but believing in people and the fact that they have assets and not necessarily always thinking that we need to help them is, is the lens that we try to live by at Centro. And before we leave here, uh, tell me a little bit about the timeline of this new facility. Does construction begin immediately now? And then when when do you anticipate the facility being open? Yeah, construction has already actually begun in February. So we were racing to have the groundbreaking ceremony and Mother Nature had other plans. But yes, it has begun and it's going to be completed by year's end, potentially start 2024. So we can have a spring opening for our new facility. We're co-creating this place, the place beautifully with everybody in the community, with our incredible partners at EUA and Findorf as well. We're at the table for everything. And I just encourage everyone to stop by Centro right now at our 810 West Badger Road location and engage and be part of the narrative because 
we can build a better city if we're not all we're all doing the legwork every single day to understand what the city's all about and who's a part of it. And just finally here, do you have just any any parting thoughts that you think are important for people to know? Oh, um, the center is a beautiful place. And one one key statement that we always touch on is that um, we believe this community reflects us, reflects everyone. And uh, one thing I was going to mention tonight was that um, I hope that everybody that's listening or that's in attendance, that was going to be in attendance tonight, um, that always remains committed to this community because this community is committed to Wisconsin. And so there's an incredible value in ensuring that we have places of hope, places of thriving, so that we can all really grow and, and, and blossom in the way that we deserve to, with dignity, with respect, with honor, and with a lot of hope. I've been talking with Karen Menendez-Collar, Executive Director of Centro Hispano of Dane County, about their new facility. Now, like Karen said, construction has already begun, and they are hoping to have the facility open by next year. Karen, thank you so much for talking with me today. On Wednesday, March 8th, the South Central Federation of Labor is hosting an open panel to talk about the overlap between workers' rights and abortion access. Earlier today, Victoria Gutierrez with the SCFL spoke with Jan Miyasaki on the 8 o'clock buzz about what to look forward to with the event. So first, just talk about what's happening and then we'll get into the logistics. Sure. In terms of what's happening, well, Wisconsin's a battleground state. It's been a battleground state mm-hmm. since for a while. This intersection of worker rights and the attack on worker rights and the attack on bodily autonomy, here we are in Wisconsin. So in uh, June, Roe was overturned, Roe v. Wade, and Wisconsin is a trigger law state, and we revert back to 1849 an abortion ban, which criminalizes providing an abortion. It makes it a class H felony, up to six years in prison, and $10,000 fine. At this time, there are only about four abortion clinics operating in Wisconsin, and today there's none. And then let's jump back to 2011 with Scott Walker. And we have another battleground issue of really the blueprint for really attacking and destroying public sector unions. And, you know, if you were, you or your listeners were here in Wisconsin, it was an uprising that went on here with public sector unions and really an attack on unions in general. Act 10 is what it's called. And so here we are with this intersection of, it's really not a coincidence that there's anti-labor and anti-abortion legislation and attacks on workers, that it's the same right-wing agenda and right-wing politicians that are spearheading this. You know, Roe v. Wade was overturned in June, and right now on January 10th, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has heard a case to eviscerate the right to strike, um, the federal right to strike. So... It's an attack on workers, it's an attack on uh, bodily autonomy, and it's what we're going to talk about on International Women's Day, March 8th. <laughs> 
the uh, tell us about the the panel. Sure, I'm really excited to have a panel of some amazing. I mean, all the panel members are really amazing. We have Professor Linda Gordon is a professor emerita of history um, and humanities at NYU. She has been teaching for decades on gender, social movements, imperialism in the 20th century, and published amazing uh, works on um, in, in biographies. She actually was a University of Wisconsin-Madison professor of history from 1984 to 1999 prior to going to NYU. And she has written a preeminent work on topics like women, women's bodies, the women's rights. Um, it's a definitive history on birth control politics in the U.S. So Professor Linda Gordon is going to be on our panel. We have Sarah Nelson, President Sarah Nelson. She's the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, AFL, CIO. And Sarah Nelson, President Nelson has the New York Times called her one of the most powerful flight attendants and InStyle magazine placed her on the top of the top 50 badass, quote unquote, badass women list. And Sarah is an, an amazing and inspiring speaker. You know, she often says that corporations have money and control, but workers have power. And the labor movement is for all working people in and outside of a union. So they're going to be speaking. Amadi Ozier is uh, local. Um, she's UW-Madison professor, and she is a cultural historian specializing in black eyes diasporic literature and um she also is comes from new york but she's here in madison and she is a member of the madison abortion and reproductive rights coalition for Healthcare. and the other speaker that we have is laura butel she's asked me local 720 council 32 member and she in july worked with her union to get language in her collective bargaining agreement about travel, lodging, and health care, abortion care. The purpose of this panel is to put the struggle of reproductive justice, of for reprodu- reproductive justice in context, historically face-to-face with the right-wing agenda attacks on workers. I think this is exactly the con- conversation uh, needed, and you want to have this before the general election in April. So how, when it, uh, how can people participate? Right. So this is a panel that is being offered hybrid Zoom. There's a registration link and or you can come in person and to register either for the Zoom webinar or to register for in person, you would go to this www.scfl, as in the South Central Federation of Labor dot org, S-C-F-L. And it will be a link there. And to get the um, to go to register in per- person or to receive the Zoom link, the event is in two weeks. We wanted to let you know right away. It's on March eighth, Wednesday, from six to seven thirty p.m. Um, local time. Victoria yes, Gutierrez. So the in person is going to be held. If you decide oh, yes. to come in person, it will be held at the United Way. Bing County, and it's uh, 2059, I believe, uh, Atwood Avenue. 
on the third floor, the Edu boardroom. Yes, and what a panel and, and the opportunity to hear from so many important voices, including um, the great Linda Gordon. Hey, um, and all, all, all these other voices that, that we, we need to be hearing from. That, you know, everybody is welcome and invited to attend. You don't have to be a union member to attend. And, you know, what we do is really to be practical. How we can fight bodily autonomy and abortion rights in this in the state, in and out of the union hall. Great. Uh, question, answer, and strategy, I guess, is going to be following. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Victoria Gutierrez. Thank and you very much. check out the SF South Central Federation of Labor website. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, it's been quite, sorry, I got a little feedback there. It's been quite an afternoon just trying to figure out what was going to be falling from the sky at any one moment. Uh, It became clear fairly early on today that in general, the deeper cold air that's been up to our north and which was producing heavy snows up in the center part of the state, that deeper cold air had pushed far enough south to keep uh, Dane and Iowa and Jefferson and the other counties in that east-west tier in a full mile or so of freezing, of below freezing temperatures. And so that at least promised to keep the freezing rain threat confined to areas further south, which has generally been the case today. Fortunately as well, the uh, warm nose, as we sometimes call it with this storm, that is the warm layer of air that's riding northward up the front side of the circulation and being lifted above ground level, that warm layer looked on sounding profiles to be shallow enough in its depth, just a couple or 3,000 feet through most of the day, to limit the amount of melting that was taking place up above that low pile of folding. So that warded off some of the heavier icy sleet that we might have seen develop here in Madison and kept the precipitation generally kind of in the finer sleet or snow grain category today. Uh, Even so, though, the streets have become quite a mess through the course of the day with the gradual accretion of ice on them. Uh, Things are a bit worse to the south, though, along the Illinois border, where prognostic soundings have been indicating a more conducive temperature profile for freezing rain, and that's generally been corroborated by surface reports through the afternoon, though many locations, even to our south, have been seesawing between freezing rain and sleet and snow through the course of the day. So that may have prevented the development of the sort of uh, glare ice that can be so dangerous in freezing rain situations like this. A check of the uh, Department of Transportation maps, incidentally, in the last few minutes reveals just a few minor difficulties on main roads so far, uh, mostly just limited to some modest and expected slowdown. So the plows seem to be keeping pace with the uh, weather this evening. A look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage currently reveals the strength of the upper level winds that have been involved in lifting this storm, or actually two storms, into existence. The closed upper low that was off the coast of San Diego on Monday, and which I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, can now be seen lifting northeastward through the mid-Mississippi Valley region and up the Ohio River, and it's that uh, that center, which brought us the precipitation that we've seen so far today. The second jet maximum that's behind it, currently ejecting from uh, New Mexico on a more northward track, 
is going to rush overhead here as we go overnight tonight and into tomorrow. And the pile here uh, up above us, those 180 mile per hour winds come in aloft, is going to push down on the atmosphere below and dry out the air column above the first or second mile. So that'll turn our precipitation over to uh, light freezing drizzle as we go through the mid part of the night into the morning hours. We'll continue to warm modestly as we go into tomorrow morning as well with winds veering northwesterly then and ramping up as the center of surface low pressure pulls away from us to the east in the midday. And that'll start temperatures falling in the afternoon. So any melting that we might see in the morning hours will be uh, undone by a plummeting thermometer as we go overnight tomorrow and through Friday and Arctic air comes in. So uh, in general, expect a lot of crunchy, bumpy, slippery ice underfoot for the next couple of days. We'll warm again modestly going into Saturday and we may see uh, just a little light snow on the return of that warm air Friday night ahead of it. Uh, otherwise, Saturday should see clearing with temperatures returning uh, towards freezing and we'll stay dry and about in that same temperature range through Sunday, although another fairly potent weather system looks to be lifting northeastward on a similar track as we get to Monday. The computer modeling on that one has been consistently showing the circulation bringing up a fair bit more warm air northward, so I'm expecting most of the precipitation with this next one to be rain. But back to tonight, uh, precipitation is spinning out uh, to our west and south. The last I had a look at the radar, indeed, it looks like uh, from Dane County, northwestward, northeastward, and southeastward is where most of the current precipitation is currently falling. I expect to see just some uh, briefer episodes as we go through the rest of the night. Sleet will be more likely across the mid part of the listening area with freezing rain more likely in the southern tier of counties and down into Illinois with uh, more snow or mixed precipitation to the north. Uh, temperatures will hold steady around 30 in Madison, perhaps warming to 32 or 3, 33 as we get towards morning. Easterly winds at uh, 12 to 20 miles per hour may remain gusty for a time, but they'll diminish as we get on towards tomorrow morning when we may also see another brief uptick in precipitation, which will uh, trend more towards snow as the column cools aloft. And the light snow in the morning should uh, clear as, uh, e the light snow in the morning should clear east and northeastward out of the area through the daylight hours, with uh, cloud cover maybe lifting and breaking too later on. Northwesterly winds up at uh, 10 to 20 miles per hour uh, will start to drop the thermometer in the afternoon, eventually down to about 10 degrees or so by Friday morning, perhaps even into the single digits if the winds come down enough and the sky's clear. And Friday should be generally sunny, at least early on, with increasing high clouds as we get later in the day and uh, warm air aloft thickens the ceiling downward. Temperatures will reach the upper teens on light northerly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. We may see uh, passing light snow showers going into and through part of the overnight, but those should be gone by Saturday morning. And temperatures will hold near uh, 20 or so as light winds back more southerly. And Saturday should see clearing skies with temperatures returning toward 30 or so on south to southwest winds coming up to 10 to 15 miles per hour. We'll drop back to around 20 in the overnight and then back into the low 30s on Sunday with clouds increasing at that time and uh, rain perhaps setting in as early as Sunday evening. At the moment at the airport in Madison, the temperature is 29 degrees. The dew point temperature is 25. Uh, winds are out of the northeast, uh, 18 miles per hour, still gusting up towards 30 miles per hour on a regular basis. 
Uh, the, we have an overcast overhead at uh, about 2,600 feet, and the uh, barometer's at 29.65 inches of mercury and holding steady over the past few hours. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to late February 1969 for the conclusion of the Black Studies strike. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, The Black Studies Strike of February 1969, Part 3. As disruptions from the Black Studies Strike escalate, local law enforcement can't keep up. So Mayor Otto Feske and the university leadership asked Governor Warren Knowles to call out the National Guard. The 1st Battalion of 900 Guardsmen begin arriving, in jeeps with guns permanently attached, around 9.30 Wednesday night, February 12th. They prove a mixed blessing— They keep campus buildings open and are more restrained than Madison police and Dane County deputies. But they also trigger a reaction among students, causing strike participation to grow sharply and prompting an escalation of response. That afternoon, about 7,000 strikers take to the streets under the disciplined direction of black marshals. The crowd blocks University Avenue four times in two hours until strikers are removed by police with clubs and guardsmen with fixed bayonets. Police club some students, fire a couple of tear gas canisters into crowds to clear intersections, and make ten arrests. But there are no major confrontations. Around six o'clock at night, Governor Knowles activates another 1,200 guardsmen. That night, close to 10,000 students, many with torchlights, march from Library Mall to the square and back. The march is self-policed and orderly, marred only by some racist catcalling by a few onlookers. After the march, about 500 go to 6210 Social Sciences to hear SDS co-founder and Chicago 8 defendant Tom Hayden talk about the war in Vietnam, which he says America has lost. His appearance is unrelated to the strike, and except for saying that the activation of the National Guard is, quote, the last trump card of the establishment, he demurs commenting on the action. On Friday, things are calming down, with only some token picketing of academic buildings and targeted obstruction of University Avenue. The National Guard and police from outside agencies are withdrawn from the central campus, 
but not deactivated. A noon march to the Capitol and back disrupts traffic, but is disciplined and peaceful, as is another torchlit march of about a thousand that night. Meanwhile, at their meeting in Milwaukee, the UW regents unanimously commend Chancellor Edwin Young for his handling of the crisis and demand an investigation into the Black Revolution Conference. Several say it sparked the disruptions. Young tells the regents of the potential for trouble beyond the 13 demands of the Black People's Alliance. Even if we had no black students on campus, he says, we would still have difficulties because there is a determined group of white students who are truly revolutionary and say that this is a corrupt and rotten society and that it ought to be destroyed. Saturday, a petition supporting a university administration, quote, in its refusal to surrender to mob pressure and lawless force, in its determination to continue normal educational activities, in its efforts to deal with problems, including those involving the disadvantaged members of society through rational means, is signed by 1,372 of the 2,050 faculty members. The strike's momentum begins to wane on Monday, February 17th, with numbers down to about 700. But strikers continue to obstruct streets and disrupt classes. Some shout down Professor George Mossy as he attempts to lecture on European cultural history. But Mossy takes a historian's view of the incident and is nonplussed. On Tuesday... Black People's Alliance leader Willie Edwards tells a small rally of about 1,500 that the strike is suspended, pending Wednesday's special faculty meeting to all to consider their demands. Over the 14 days of the strike, class attendance has been off by about 10%. Some classes were shut down and some were reduced to half, while the Western campus generally had full attendance. That afternoon, about half the guardsmen are sent home with the rest to follow on Thursday. In the pre-dawn hours of Wednesday, February 19th, arsonists set nine separate fires, which heavily damaged the UW Afro-American Race Relations Center at 929 University Avenue. The center has been the main meeting place for the strike leaders. Later that day, faculty vote at a special meeting, 524 to 518, against recommending that three black students expelled from UW Oshkosh be immediately admitted to the Madison campus. Monday afternoon, Governor Warren Knowles tells a press conference that his fellow Republicans controlling the legislature, quote, should not adopt legislation on the basis of prejudice or panic. In the two weeks since the black strike started, Assembly Speaker Howard Freilich and others have introduced a raft of bills to punish protesters and cut state support for the university. That night, the Faculty Committee on Studies and Instructions in Race Relations, chaired by Professor William Thede, recommends establishment of a Black Studies Department, the primary demand of the strike. But because students would not have equal authority with faculty in establishing curriculum, making appointments, and granting tenure, the Daily Cardinal denounces the report as, quote, an utterly unacceptable and insulting compromise that recommends only token efforts and denies even a token student participation. After several days pass with little progress, black leaders frustrated by the lack of action on the Thede Committee recommendations call for a resumption of the strike. 
In a 45-minute outburst on Thursday, February 27th, about 200 mostly white militants invade eight campus buildings, doing about $2,000 in damage and setting off a smoke bomb that drives right-wing State Senator Gordon Roselip from the stage of a social sciences classroom. Chancellor Young calls these deeds, quote, acts of desperation by a small group of militants who have lost most of their following. At about the same time, the state Senate gives final legislative approval to a joint special committee, its members overwhelmingly Republican, to investigate campus disturbances. Black Council leader Horace Hansen later denounces the property damage, but says it is, quote, not the place of the Black Council to impose sanctions upon those whose intense reaction to destructive oppression has been destruction. On March 3rd, by a vote of 540 to 414, the faculty endorses the Thede Committee's recommendation for an autonomous Department of Afro-American Studies within the College of Letters and Sciences. The Regents approved the detailed plans for a new department in January 1970, with an expected start date that fall, making the Black Studies strike of February 1969 Madison's most successful political protest of the era. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. And thanks to my colleagues also for working around my doing the news this evening from home. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Jan Miyasaki with the 8 o'clock buzz and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggy helped produce it. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night, and stay safe on the roads out there. <laughs>